I'm sure many of you have seen or heard different things about unspoken rules between men and women, right? You know, between husbands and wives or in a dating relationship or whatever it may be. And these kind of lists have certainly gotten around and they've evolved over the years. So I just thought I'd share a few of them with you uh, this morning as we get into our teaching time. Here are a few rules. I'll start with the unspoken rules of women for men. Uh, Rule number one, we are always right. Okay, so I'm not saying guys are always right. I'm saying women are saying we are always right, okay? Rule number two, if we are not right, please refer to rule number one. Rule number three, when no one's home, stand in front of a mirror and practice this until you can say it in public. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. Rule number four, after you'd mastered that, work on this. I am sorry. I am sorry. I am sorry. Rule number five, we really shouldn't have to tell you the rules. You should be able to figure them out on your own. And rule number six, the rules are never fair, and we reserve the right to change the rules whenever we want and without any prior notification whatsoever. So here are the flip side of those rules. Maybe you agree or disagree. They're unspoken. So um, This is a list of man's, <coughs> men's unspoken rules for women. Rule number one, crying is blackmail. <coughs> rule number two, yes and no are perfectly acceptable answers to just about any question. Rule number three, anything we said six months ago is completely inadmissible in an argument. In fact, all comments become null and void after seven days. Amen, right? Rule number four, all men see only in 16 colors like Windows default settings. Peach, for example, is a fruit. It is not a color. Pumpkin is also a fruit, and we have no idea in the world what mauve is. You're lucky I even pronounced it. Maybe right. I'm not even sure I did. So there you go. Rule number five, when we have to go somewhere, absolutely anything you wear is fine. And rule number six, if something we said can be interpreted two ways, and one of those ways make you sad or angry, we meant the other one. <clears throat> now the funny part about those rules is that there is an element, a, a seed of truth within them. And there certainly is some wisdom when it comes to understanding excuse me, in relating to the opposite sex. And just as there is wisdom in having an understanding and relating to the opposite opposite sex, uh, when it comes to having a healthy relationship with each other, I believe there's also some understanding to be gleaned when it comes to our relationship with God and having a healthy relationship with Him. And in our relationship with God, there's Really not a lot of room for guessing uh, what it it means to live in an intimate relationship with him. You could say that God has some rules to live by. They're not really rules. There are some. There are plenty of commands in there. But he definitely has some, some rules, in essence, to live by. And these rules tell us a lot about the kind of God that he is. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God shares some of these rules that he definitely has not left unspoken. Here's what Micah writes. He has shown you, people, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We've been considering these words as we've been walking through a series over the last three weeks. This will be the fourth week as we're walking through it in the month of of, uh, August. A series called Walk This Way. 
And today, last week, we looked at the first phrase in those three power-packed phrases, to act justly. And this week, we're going to kind of spend some time considering the second of those phrases and what it means to love mercy. Now, we spent the first couple of weeks. Last week, we got into, as I said, uh, talking about acting justly. But we spent the first couple of weeks really digging in and trying to get a picture of the kind of world that Micah was living in and, and that he's preaching in. And, and so understanding the context of the message that he's preaching uh, into. And, and so we talked about the people of God being in a season. There's two main concerns that God has with his people. One is their idolatry. And the other one, which is just as concerning to God, is their injustice and how they're treating each other. And so there's a there's a, a segment of wealthy people, landowners who are taking advantage of other people around them and, and and defrauding them of their houses and of their property. There's a judge there are judges and civic leaders who are taking bribes to look the other way. There are uh, prophets and priests who are telling these these wealthy landowners and the, the civic leaders and judges what they want to hear in exchange for bribes, in exchange for money, and, and kind of siding with them and their decisions and the way they interpret the law. There were families that were lying to one another and betraying one another right underneath their own roofs, and, and families were coming apart at the seams. All that's going on. Let me add a little bit more even color to that picture. As I mentioned the very first week, the kingdom of of Israel is divided into two kingdoms at this point, as Mike is preaching. You have the northern kingdom, which was called Samaria, and you have the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. And at the time, Assyria was the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. It was conquering every country around them, to the right, to the left, you know, just going in and conquering peoples. And Assyria, at the time of Micah, had already gone in and invaded and conquered the northern kingdom of Samaria, but had yet to conquer Judah at that time. Well, when Assyria plundered Samaria, in the invasion, many of the men were killed, and so what you have left is a lot of women and children. And so they left Samaria and made their way south to the southern kingdom of Judah, to the rest of God's people, and they began to make a new home there. And they tried to make a new life there, and they came with pretty much nothing except the clothes on their backs and a few family valuables and heirlooms. The problem, though, was that the northern or southern kingdom of Judah became flooded then with an influx of people. And anytime you have an influx of people and you have a limited number of resources, those resources begin to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle away, and the prices begin to inflate. And before they knew it, the poor in the southern kingdom were facing some dire circumstances. They couldn't afford the resources that they needed to live on, and the poor were being left behind, many of those who had come up or down from Samaria. To compound this even further, there was quite a rivalry between the two kingdoms. Even though they were all God's people, there was quite a rivalry between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. That's why they split off. And there was a bit of an attitude from the southern kingdom that, eh, you know what, northern kingdom kind of had it coming. I mean, we're, we're the true people of God. And, you know, they, they kind of made their bed, now they're going to have to lie in it. And so they kind of had it they ha- kind of had it coming. They, they deserved to be wiped out by Assyria. And why in the world should we have to, 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 to bear this burden of them coming in and, and, ha- and living among us? Why, why do we need to, to be in the business of taking care of these people from the northern kingdom who are now among us? And so everyone was kind of looking out for themselves. Everyone was grasping tightly onto what they deemed 
was theirs and their own resources. And what makes it even worse was that the people of Judah were incredibly anxious. I mean, they'd just seen their northern neighbors, northern kingdom of Samaria, overrun, overtaken, invaded, and they're expecting that to come to them at any point. And as usually happens when you're anxious about something, about things being taken from you, what do you do? You even clasp on tighter to those things, to what you have. Well, unsurprisingly, this does not make God very happy. Speaking of God, hopefully by now you remember the meaning of Micah's name, because I've mentioned it every single week. Hopefully you remember that. Micah's name literally means, who is like God, right? Who is like God? And so Micah's very name, in the midst of all that's going on, in the midst of all of this situation, is calling them back to remember and to consider the nature of God and what he's like because they've lost sight of it, apparently. And they're living a certain way to a degree outside of that realm of who is God like. And their actions are reflecting that they have completely lost sight of who God is like. And so Micah closes the book in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, by saying this of God. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. God delights to show mercy. That word mercy is the Hebrew word, and I am not going to pronounce it right, but it's chesed. It's kind of said like that. It's very hard to say because we don't usually pronounce things like that. H-E-S-E-D, basically. Chesed in the Hebrew language. It's a word that is is very power-packed in its meaning, and so you may not recognize this, so, you know, every, A, every time you see mercy in the Old Testament, it's not the word has said, but just because you don't see the word mercy in the Old Testament, I'll show you a few verses that don't, and, but it actually is the word mercy, or the word has said, and so it's been translated as things like steadfast love, loving kindness, unwavering compassion, all of those fall under this umbrella of this word has said in the Hebrew language, and it's not so much one isolated act of mercy, but it's an attitude. It's a spirit. It, it, it's, a, it's a disposition. It's a way of living. said, mercy. God delights to show mercy. Now, what do you do when you delight to do something? You want to do it, right? You want to, you, you want to engage in it over and over again. You want to continuously be doing it. You make it a regular routine of, of who you are and what you do. It makes me think of, of Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, one of my favorite verses, where the Lord, word says, The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Great is His faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh every single morning. Why do they begin afresh? Because God delights to show mercy. He looks for opportunities to show mercy. And so part of the reason God is so fed up with his people is because he's all about mercy, not just in the miracles and things he's done on on their behalf, but you go and, you know, it's interesting. You read through the Old Testament, especially you read through the law in uh, in Deuteronomy and Exodus and and Leviticus, and and it's very easy to think God is, is harsh and he's demanding, and he draws a hard line. But you go back and read those laws, and so much within, completely throughout the fabric of those laws, there is mercy, there's compassion, 
There's grace. You go back and read the stories of, of what God has done and, and, and what he expects of his people and how he exhibits mercy to his people. And mercy and grace are just on every single page. You see, God's mercy is not just a New Testament idea. It's not like all of a sudden, New Testament, we turn the page from uh, you know, the Old Testament into the New Testament. And as soon as we get to Matthew chapter 1, oh, there's grace. There's mercy. No, it, it's from Genesis to Revelation. God's mercy fills the pages of Scripture. Let me just give you a few examples from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, has said, mercy is the actual word there, abounding in mercy and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love, of hesed, of mercy, to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Psalm 18, 86, verse 15. But you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before you. Psalm 145 verses 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And again, that's not even, I'm not even including all of the stories of God's mercy and grace shown to his people and shown to the peoples around them in the way that he exhibits how, who he is and what he's like and trying to display that to his people so that they live that way as well. And so you can see how central mercy is to the character of God, to who he is and what he expects of his people. You can also see why during the time of Micah, he was rather fed up with his people because they did not delight to show mercy. They were far from delighting to show mercy to one another because as you well know, as we've described it throughout this series, his people had a hard time getting it. They had a hard time getting what was truly important. All they knew was that Assyria was knocking on the door. And so they're asking questions like we've read a couple times in this series from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. With what shall we come before the Lord? With what shall I bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Let me take it up a notch. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Okay, that's not enough. Let me take it up another notch. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do I offer? In other words, what do we bring to the temple, God? What ritual do we perform? What, what do you require of us so that we can please you, get you back on our good side, and get Assyria off our back and out of Judah? And Micah says, in essence, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it's not about what you bring to the temple. It's how you're living beyond the temple. And he's shown you what's good. This is not new. You just need to refocus yourself. He's shown you what's good, and what does the Lord require of you? What's he looking for? He wants you to act justly. He wants you to love mercy, and he wants you to walk humbly with him. But you know that people in Micah's day weren't the only ones who had trouble getting it. In fact, Jesus had to repeat this message to those in his generation hundreds of years later. And Matthew chapter 9, when the religious leaders asked Jesus why in the world he was eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, he responds by saying this in verse 13, I want you to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
He has to repeat it again just a couple of chapters later in chapter 12 and verse 7 when he says to them, if you had known what these words mean, in other words, you didn't go and learn it, but if you had learned what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. When Jesus says these words, he's quoting from another Old Testament prophet, minor prophet by the name of Hosea in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And so when Jesus is speaking of sacrifice, when Jesus is speaking of burnt offerings, he's speaking of rituals in the temple. He's speaking of what we do when we're in a church service, so to speak. And in in Matthew chapter 9, they're, they're trying to call him out for who he's hanging around with, In Matthew chapter 12, they're trying to call him out for what he's letting his disciples get away with on the Sabbath. And and, and Jesus responds in both cases, listen, you need to know what this means. And because you don't know it, you you need to go and learn it. It's not simply about what you bring to the temple. That's all good and well. It's all, uh, it's all good and well that, that we are here. It's all good and well that you worship in the temple, you worship in in, in the sanctuary, you worship in the building, wherever it may be. That's all good and well. But it's also about life beyond the temple. It's also about life beyond these four walls. Because God desires mercy, not just sacrifice. And I find it interesting that that Jesus tells them this is something they need to learn. You need to go and learn it. It reminds me of a story I I read recently back in the Old West about an old cattle rancher who caught a young man trying to steal one of his cows, and when the thief was dragged before the rancher, the rancher looked down at the frightened young boy and young man, and he said, hang him. And then he looked at the young man, and he said, son, I like you. It's nothing personal, but we've got rules here in the West. Besides, it'll teach you a lesson. Well, years later, the rancher died and appeared before the judgment seat of God, and as he stood there, he remembered all the mean things that he had done and the horrible things that he had engaged in, and he trembled in his boots before the Lord, and God looked on him in mercy and tenderness and said, forgive him. It'll teach him a lesson. I don't know if that's an accurate picture of what it's going to be like, but I do like the imagery there. God does want for you and me to learn mercy, but he doesn't want us to wait for the judgment seat to have to learn it. And it's in that spirit uh, that we want to give you three things. You know, part of learning to love something uh, is learning about it, right? We want to learn to love mercy, as the Bible talks about, as Micah talks about. And part of learning to love something is learning about that thing, whether it's a spouse or someone that we're dating, a relationship that we're in. And so it's in that spirit that I just want to give you three things as we close this morning. And we're not really close to closing. We're like halfway through, but, you know, we're we're towards the end of the message. So (laughs) you know what I mean. (laughs) Sorry, you got your hopes up. Uh, but I, I just want to give you three things when it comes to uh, insights into to, to how, how do we learn more about what mercy is about and what God desires of us and learning, uh, learning to love it. And the first is this. When it comes to showing mercy, deserve has nothing to do with it. I, I hope we get this. I hope we get this. Deserve has nothing to do with it. When it comes to mercy... Deserve has nothing to do with it. Story goes that a woman, you've probably heard this story before, that a woman appeared before Napoleon to plead for her son's life. He was about to be executed. And Napoleon responded that the punishment in this case fit the crime. It was justice. 
that he serve that punishment and be executed. And the woman responded, but sir, I have not come asking for justice. I have come pleading for mercy. And Napoleon said, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And she responded, it wouldn't be mercy if he deserved it. Therefore, mercy is what I asked for. And it said Napoleon was so taken by her response that he granted her son's pardon. That's what makes mercy, mercy, right? If the person deserves it, it's no longer mercy because deserve has nothing to do with it. And if deserve has something to do with it, then it's no longer mercy. And I know when we hear stories like this, and I know you, some of us feel that way at least, because I do sometimes deepen my spirit, okay? I don't want to feel this way, but it's very easy when we, we hear a story like that, and we hear a definition like that, that one of our first questions is, but aren't we enabling that person? I mean, aren't I enabling that person if I just keep giving mercy over and over and over again? And that's a legitimate question. I don't, I, I don't want to illegitimize that question, but let me respond in a couple of ways. First, just some perspective here. Don't you think God has run the risk of enabling you and me more than a few times? in the course of our lives with all the more mercy that he's poured out into us. Just first and foremost, just taking a step back and, and, and analyzing that question. But secondly, when it comes to enabling, and I'm not going to go through all of the psychology of this and, and ins and outs, but, but I will say this. I think it's important to remember that when you think about that question, it's important to have a relationship there, Right? I mean, I, I just don't think you can make that determination unless there is a relationship there. And relationship, in many ways, mercy is, is helped by giving that person mercy so it, and a relationship can be established. And then once you have the relationship there, okay, then you can do some, some discerning, right? There, there is some discerning to be had. But initially, and even continually, I would say if we're going to err on one side or the other, Let's err on the side of mercy, don't you think? I mean, if we're going to err on one side or the other, mercy or, or, or justice or not mercy, let's err on the side of, of mercy. Because you can't make that call unless you're in a relationship with that person. Then once you're in, again, there, there can be some discernment about what's going on. But by the way, even if there is discernment that you're enabling them in one way, that doesn't mean that there aren't other alternatives for, for showing mercy, right? I think this is where it's, it's important to recognize that mercy is not just a one-time act, right? And I know we know that, you know, theoretically, but sometimes it, it doesn't always parlay into how we live and operate. Mercy is more than just a one-time act. It's an attitude. It's a, it's a per pervasive spirit that just emanates out of us. And so, you know, maybe in, in this moment, doing this might be enabling, but that doesn't mean there aren't other avenues for showing mercy and grace and, and not just pounding a heavy fist of judgment. But you've got to enter into some realm of relationship sometimes to find out which expression of it is best. And so don't just disregardingly cut yourself off from any sense of obligation by saying, well, I'll probably just be enabling them. And certainly don't disregardingly say, you know what, that person just doesn't deserve it because deserve has nothing to do with it. That's what makes it mercy. After all, that's the way God has treated us. Think about a passage in 
Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us because of all the good things we've done, right? Because we're awesome and God is just like, I can not not show mercy to you because you're so incredibly awesome. He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of His mercy. Deserve has nothing to do with it. Secondly, when it comes to showing and receiving mercy, I believe mercy speaks more loudly than we often realize. You know, in the course of, of, of history, mercy has been, and in many places still is, a, a radical idea in our world. In the Middle Eastern religions of the <clears throat> Old Testament, and even in the Greek and Roman empires of the New Testament, justice was the ideal. And in fact, mercy in many ways was seen as a, as a character flaw. That, that, that you, were, you were providing relief, <clears throat> you were providing assistance for someone who, who didn't deserve it. Someone who, 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 who didn't earn it. That would, you know, th- this, this idea of, of, of giving unwarranted help and relief, that, that runs contra, that runs right in the face of justice. That's a weakness. And so when God called for mercy to play such an important and huge role and central role in the Old Testament law, when God spoke of himself in such ways, and when God asked his people, called his people to live in such ways, that was a unique thing compared to all the other gods and religions of the day. And so when Jesus comes along and he speaks of God as loving the world, and, and not just his people, but loving the world and being merciful and, and caring for us, and how we're to exhibit those things, to, to love those around us and to care and be merciful to those around us, that was an unusual thing compared to what most gods and religions emphasize. And so when Jesus comes along and he says this in Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you. By the way, I just want to clarify there. When he says a new command, he's not just saying like, this is brand new. Again, mercy, love doesn't start with Jesus, okay? In the, it, when Jesus comes on the scene, first of all, Jesus has always been on the scene, but when he becomes a man, mercy and love don't start in the New Testament. That's a, that's a God thing, okay? God's from the beginning, so it's always been there. So when he says a new command I give you, he's saying a, a renewed. This is something God's been calling you to since the beginning, I just want you to refocus. I want you to renew this commitment, this command. A new, a renewed command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How many of you remember singing the song, and they'll know we are Christians by our... You remember that song? I I remember singing that song all the time. I I said I wasn't going to sing solo, but I guess I did sing that one solo. And so when Jesus comes along and he says, like, the world will know that you're Christians by the way you love each other. Of course they would. Of course they would. Because no other God, no other religion spoke of mercy and love and caring for one another and how we treat one another as much and in the same ways that he and God his Father, as revealed in the Old Testament, have. That was unique. That was extraordinary. And then to top it all off, as if that couldn't get big enough to maintain that our mercy must extend not just to our our family, not just to our tribe, but to all of humanity, regardless of race or color or creed or ethnicity. That was a radical and unique claim for religion at that time. And so you can see how loving mercy could get 
people's attention then. And you know what? It still gets people's attention today. It still gets people's attention today. Mercy speaks, but you know what? It's not the talking about it that speaks like I'm doing right now. It's the living of it. It's the learning to love it and learning to live it that speaks because mercy is, to quote Forrest Gump or kind of quote Forrest Gump, mercy is as mercy does. Heard a story about a group of missionary students going through language school. When you go to another country, one of the things that they teach you is you're not just going there and assuming they speak English. Many of them don't, but you need to learn their language. So they're going through school learning uh, language courses and very first day of class, the teacher entered the room and without saying a word, walked down every row of students, weaved in and out. Finally, he stood up in front of the class and he said, did you notice anything special about me? And nobody could think of anything in particular. And finally, somebody raised their hand and kind of mockingly said, well, you do have on a really nice cologne. And the whole class laughed and the teacher said, That's exactly the point. You see, it will be a long time before any of you will be able to speak Chinese fluently enough to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody in Chinese. But even before you are able to do that, you can minister the sweet fragrance of Christ by the quality of how you live your life. Mercy speaks, oftentimes louder than words. And then finally, when it comes to showing and receiving mercy, I believe mercy can be healing to the giver as well as to the receiver. You know, we think of mercy in terms of, you know, us giving it to others, but I I think Bible speaks very clearly that mercy is just as healing for us who give it as it is for those who receive it, because God is in the mercy. I read this passage a couple of weeks ago, but listen again to the words of Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 8. Listen to what God says. He says, is this... Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? Verses preceding that, he's talked about this is not the fasting I've chosen. They're doing all the right things, right? They're worshiping, they're fasting, they're praying, they're they're offering the right things in the worship service, right? They're doing all the things that you and I are doing perfectly. They're speaking perfect Christianese. And God says, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Yeah, it's all good and well what you do inside the temple. These are the kind of things I want you to be about. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked, to clothe them, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? These are all expressions of mercy. And then listen to what he says next. Then, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And what? Your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Healing follows on the heels of showing mercy. And so when you hear of those opportunities to serve And to extend mercy, those aren't just opportunities and calls for your help. Oftentimes, those are invitations to your own healing, to your own growth. Because oftentimes, healing breaks forth not just in the life 
of the receiver, but in the life of the giver who shows mercy. I think Jesus said it best when he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy, for they will be shown mercy. And so those calls for our help this week, those opportunities to show mercy this week, those aren't just calls for our help. Those could be invitations for our healing. But I think it's past time for us to just talk about it. It's time for us to learn to love it and to live it.